0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome
1: to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska. This is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the eye-popping cost of the financial aid related to the coronavirus pandemic. We're also going to be digging into the latest retailers that have filed for bankruptcy protection and the state of the fitness and apparel industries. Now, those are some big topics to cover. And so in order to do that, I am joined by Mark Satov. He is the founder of Satov Consultants and a business strategy expert, and he's here to help us find solutions and ideas for businesses that are dealing with the pandemic. Mark, welcome back to the show.
0: It's great to be here. You're right. We have a lot of big topics to cover today, so I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, so let's let's jump right into it, to that eye-popping figure that I mentioned off the top. Um, on Wednesday, the federal government unveiled their fiscal snapshot, which is, not a budget it's not quite uh, an economic update but nonetheless they have are forecasting a deficit of 343 billion dollars which is expected to be the highest since the second world war Uh, that's more than any economist predictions and well above the 28.1 billion dollar deficit that was expected before the coronavirus pandemic hit um, our net federal debt is also expected to hit $1.2 trillion. I mean, aside from the fact that these numbers are enormous, what do you make of this fiscal snapshot, Mark?
0: It, well, it's hard not to start with uh, the fact that the numbers are so enormous because they sound so uh, so jarring and, and so dramatic. And uh, mm-hmm. what you need to do, though, is you need to analyze them, of course, relative to uh, our GDP and relative to the past. And, you know, you started by saying they haven't been this big in proportion since World War Two, uh, which makes sense. But this is an event that in many ways is similar. Uh, so, you know, we did some analysis and you've seen different reports in the media about uh, the size of the deficit. Now, the size of the deficit as a percentage of GDP uh, is unbelievable and it's bigger than we've seen in a very, very long time. But then you take it uh, the next step and you say, okay, well, what is the size of the debt relative to GDP? And I think the number is 49 percent. But when you actually look back to the early 90s, there was a time during the Martin and Chrétien years where debt was just about 50 percent as a percentage of GDP. And we got through that. And so you sort of say, okay. And I've been saying that for a long time when people have been complaining about the $30 billion a year deficits. They're sort of saying, well, OK, but I remember $30 billion a year deficits 30 years ago when the uh, when the GDP was obviously much less. So you sort of look and say, OK, not that we want to replicate uh, a period of high debt that people see as risky, but it's not as dramatic. But then when you look at uh, when you look at it and you say, okay, well, what are the carrying costs of this debt uh, as a percentage of GDP? And we did a little graph from 1990 down to now because the interest rates are so much lower today. The carrying costs of percentage of GDP are less than they've ever been. So they're they're going to go up now. Uh, a little bit because the debt, the total government debt is going up by, uh, I guess, 50 percent or so uh, from 600 billion and change to just over a trillion. So three or four hundred. Uh, but the the uh, borrowing rate has gone down again. So you, and you look at this, you say, OK, well, what should they do about it? Well, they actually need to take advantage of this low carrying cost for the next few years And find a way, you know, if I were running the government like a business, find a way to make sure to not increase the total debt and actually try to decrease the total debt so that when carrying costs go up, so when interest rates go up, you've taken a bit of a bite out of the debt. I actually think that's the bigger challenge. So looking at it now, okay, you could get your head around the numbers, but how are you actually going to get to non-deficits in the next few years and actually reduce the debt?
1: I think that's the big question. They're clearly banking on low interest rates for for some time um, in order to, to make this doable. But low interest rates are also, uh, I mean, signify a weak economy. But um, this spending is obviously exceptional, right? This is the coronavirus pandemic, as you mentioned. This is, you know, an event that we've never seen before. On that note, do you think they've done a good job in terms of all of the spending and the financial aid programs? What do you What do you think?
0: I think you know me enough to know you're asking a really loaded question. I, the, uh, do I think Give your they- Give me your okay. takes.
1: Give me your takes.
0: Do we have a week for the show? I, I think they did a good job by coming out strong in the beginning. And I think they had an opportunity to revise it after that. So I think the fact that they came out so quickly- and said we're going to uh, backstop essentially the economy and our citizens, I think was a sense of immediate relief for people and so it reduced the level of panic. But I actually think they had time, I mean don't forget it's been four months now, to actually revise some of the programs and be more thoughtful about the rules about some of the programs. So uh, if you'll permit me, I have a philosophical issue in the sense that I don't believe that it is government's job To eliminate hardship from our society. And if we think about World War II, and we think about, you know, I I was lucky, uh, I didn't grow up through hardship. And, you know, we were a middle class family, we had more than what we needed. But my parents, uh, maybe yours, but certainly others who lived in, you know, the 30s and 40s, they had hardship. And some people couldn't go to university because they had to work. And some people couldn't put their kids uh, in hockey programs because they couldn't afford it. And I feel like there's a thing now where it's like the government doesn't want to have anybody feel any hardship. And I think at the end of the day, we need to say, you know what, this is bad, but these things happen in life. And so the government needs to know that there are limits and we need to find a way to help the most vulnerable. We need to find a way to help the people who if we didn't help them, would really not be able to feed themselves. But we don't need to find a way to help every student who doesn't have a summer job if they're living at home and their parents are paying for their university. Like, I'm sorry, it may it may not be great for them, and they were hoping to pay their student debt down earlier, but some things you just can't have. So I feel like, I feel like in their enthusiasm to help everybody, uh, they've helped a lot of people who didn't need it. And I do believe, again, it's a philosophical point, I believe that our society does not want to have hardship or negativity. And I think we just need to accept that life is not always great. And sometimes it's, you know, we just kind of live with, you sort of take what comes, right?
1: Yeah. Part of it was, I think the, the rush to, you know, they, they made the program so uh, wide, I guess, uh, so that they could get the money out as quickly as possible and make sure that people weren't finding themselves in, in positions where, Um, They didn't have money. They had to go further into debt. But um, I mean, we could talk about this all day. I do want to move on from it uh, to another news topic uh, related to the pandemic. We saw provincial governments, particularly here in Ontario, loosen some restrictions around the sale of certain things like cannabis and alcohol. Um, For private cannabis retailers in Ontario, this meant that they could do uh, curbside pickup and delivery that is about to come to an end when the state of emergency order uh, expires later this month. Uh, so will private companies' ability to do delivery and curbside pickup. Uh, it's unclear what what alcohol changes will change, but um, many companies have been calling on the province to keep those loosened restrictions in place. Mark, what do you think of this situation?
0: Okay, this show needs to last two hours because each of these topics <laughs> are so multifaceted. I mean... As a starting point, I believe as a citizen, not as a business person, that pot and booze should really be treated in a similar way. We've decided that we have you know, intoxicating substances that are generally healthy for us in moderation, but that need a level of government control. And with uh, the pot market, we have a specific issue, uh, which is a market issue in that the price for illegal pot is actually very low. And so if you set the price for legal pot to be too high, you're not going to break uh, that illicit trade. And just as another anecdote from my youth, for whatever reason, when uh, in the early 90s, you know, I used to buy a gram of hash in Montreal for $10. Right. Uh, And that was almost 30 years ago. Don't worry, I was plenty old enough. Uh, But um, but now, you know, you could buy a gram of weed. I think people smoke weed more than more than hash now. But, you know, you could buy that for $10 or less. Uh, on the black market. And it's pretty, it's relatively safe most of the time. And so they have a market issue. And I think what's happened is the government has put so much restriction since the beginning on how to sell pot, that what they've done is they've not taken a, a bite out of the illicit trade. And I know that that is what they want to do. And so generally speaking, We need to treat pot like booze, like like I don't see the, the rationale for having them being treated differently. And why do we want to layer restrictions onto market? I mean, you look at all the players in cannabis and they've been hurting since long before the pandemic hit. And they've been hurting because they were planning on being able to sell their their wares widely. But the government has dropped the ball, both federally and provincially all across this country. They've dropped the ball on retail. And so I I just don't understand why they want to keep putting restrictions on the retail sale. Again, I am all for controlling the sale of weed. I don't believe we should be able to smoke it in public. I do believe we have to really control how we sell it to minors. I'm on that side, uh, but I also believe that it should be similar to alcohol because I think uh, it's a similar type of substance. So I just don't get the restriction, frankly.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll see, um, I guess, what happens with, with in terms of alcohol rules that have changed with things like, you know, restaurants being able to sell wine and beer. But um, that will be for another day. Uh, let's do...
0: I just realized, sorry, before we go on, do you think my mom's going to call me right after this show and say, you did what in the early 90s? 100%. Like, yeah. Expect okay. your mom, phone to ring right away. It's all for the show, mom. It's not true. It's not true. Yeah,
1: it was just just for the show. (laughs) Yeah, it was for the show. I think we are due for another edition of the retail roundup, where we discuss the latest news in the retail industry. Lots to talk about. Once again, first let's let's talk Le Chateau. Um, They released their annual results. Sales are down. It was eight percent over the year. uh, Loss of nearly seventy million. The retailer is struggling, and COVID nineteen has not helped. Here's what they said in the report, which I think is the most interesting thing that came out. Quote, there are material uncertainties that cast significant doubt upon the company's ability to continue as a going concern. That does not sound great. Sounds like their future is very much in doubt. Are you surprised by this, Mark?
0: It's not very positive. Uh, no. Okay, so more about my childhood in Montreal. Uh, Le Chateau <laughs> was... A very fun brand. When you were a kid in Montreal, Le Chateau was a place that some parents would let you shop at and some wouldn't. It was a brand that was known, no offense to the Siegel family. uh, They were not exactly high-end garments. Uh, They were cheap, uh, but they were also very fashion-forward. Right. And so if you think about, uh, you know, the early 80s when I was uh, becoming a teenager. Right. So like, you know, uh, mod uh, and sort of very super modern clothing. I didn't even realize Le Chateau was still around. So that's perhaps not a a symbol of a great job that they've done in in brand awareness outside. No. But uh, the question is, and, and I think we'll see this theme with all of the retailers, is it COVID or did they not modernize? Did they not keep pace? And did they have an offering that was relevant? And so am I surprised? No, I'm definitely not surprised. If I think about the clothing that they, and I'm a, again, I have not been into a Le Chateau uh, in literally 25 years. So,
1: but I think that's probably a sign of.
0: right well it was always it's quite if you saw the clothing again from when i was a kid, it was quite fashion forward and i'm a little bit more conservative than that not as conservative as brooks brothers which we'll talk about but somewhere in between so but i haven't been so i don't know if that's sort of still where they are but if it is it's actually harder to sell that stuff online i think i think it's a place where you want to go and it's a bit of a lifestyle thing for a certain segment so
1: and there's lots of competition there as well um particularly i think in the price range that they were at because they were Not necessarily high-end. Let's switch over to David's Tea. They filed for uh, bankruptcy protection yesterday. Uh, They did so in order to basically accelerate the transition towards online as well as becoming a wholesaler. They've started selling their products um, and reaching partnerships with various grocery stores. Um, They made it very clear that they are looking to reduce their footprint and they're currently negotiating with landlords about their lease to get more favorable deals on their lease agreements. I mean, they've been struggling for a while and their store is so experiential that you have to think they would have a tough time in a COVID recovery, uh, operating their stores. I mean, what do you make of, of this case, Mark?
0: First of all, it cannot be a coincidence that this is, uh, also owned by the Siegel family, which is invested in Le Chateau. And there was obviously some large holding company level. Can we make it? Where do we have cash? Where do we need to put cash? How do we structure this?
1: Yeah, he's actually the, the founder, the founder, co-founder. So yeah. And he's the interim CEO right now.
0: Right. So, uh, and, and by the way, I take no pleasure in that. I don't know the family. I take no pleasure in that. I just, I just sort of say they're, they're, it's not a coincidence uh, that, that it happened at the same time, because I'm guessing there are related decisions about how much they could support the businesses. Experiential. It should be an experience. I actually believe, and I, I, this will sound a little harsh, no excuse for not making that experience work right now you could argue that uh tea is not like coffee and so they couldn't quite do what starbucks did in the sense that they sell high-end tea that you drink on site and then and then take away from you starbucks was much more about drinking on site and this was much more about taking away that should have actually raised the ticket right because starbucks you go in, you spend i mean too much but five or six dollars on a on a latte and here is the tea but it's actually taking away the loose tea But they should have been able to get people in the store. Did they have too big a footprint? For sure. Were they on the high streets all the time where perhaps they couldn't always afford to be? For sure. But again, and and by the way, they've had issues. They've had, uh, you know, revolving door of CEOs. They've tried a bunch of things. Uh, I'm not sure if it's just hard to make that work. Uh, But my gut is actually they just had the wrong concept. But you should be able to make experiential work in that category with a blip during COVID. But what happened was you had a retail that was struggling. A great idea. They got a lot of hype. I think they did market well because I think the hype was more than the sales. Uh, and I just think this was more the final nail in the coffin as opposed to um, something that suddenly hit a retail that was all, all, all you know always doing well.
1: Yeah. As we discussed, COVID is kind of the accelerant. When it comes to struggling retailers, I think when they I first IPO'd, it was around like the 20, their shares were selling for $20-ish mark. And now it's, it's I believe, less than a dollar. So they've come uh, pretty far. Uh, let's Finally, let's talk about Brooks Brothers. You mentioned them. Uh, one of America's oldest clothing brands has filed for bankruptcy in the US. Um, they've been struggling for some time as well, especially as online competition uh, increases in this segment. I mean, what do you think? Is this another example of COVID-19 being the accelerant, accelerating your existing problems with a business?
0: You're going to get a lot of mail today. When you say the oldest, do you, do you mean the customer segment or do you mean the company itself? Because uh,
1: <laughs> That's not what I meant, but fair point.
0: <laughs> here's a story. I'm going to turn up the contrast a little, you know, this is an Upper East Side brand. And when I say Upper East Side, I mean, this sort of preppy, staid, style that you know when i said that le chateau is a little too fashion forward for me Mm -hmm. well brooks brothers is at the other end extreme it is way too boring it's for and again no offense it's for a finance minister it's not for uh people who want to wear things that are interesting now of course kidding aside there is a segment for that and so i could poke fun of it because it's not my style but there's a segment for it They have some big stores. I mean, if you look at what they did in Toronto, they had um, an expensive store on Bloor Street. They moved to a more expensive two-level store on Bloor Street and very expensive real estate. Uh, And the clothing they sell is medium to high end. It's not super high end. So I actually wonder if they're thinking about how uh, how they made a mistake in terms of spending too much on the experience relative to the clothing. I actually went there for things like staples, so undershirts or shirt stays that men buy. For things like that, they were great. Uh, I just think they didn't keep with the times for a certain segment, and I think they probably overspent. Again, nail on the coffin, I don't know. It is a brand that you could buy a little bit more online, c- again, compared to uh, uh, Le Chateau or many other apparel retailers, and we'll talk about that because there is some replenishment aspect if you buy a apologize a boring cotton white button down shirt that you put a preppy tie in that i just wouldn't wear you could buy the same thing and you bought the same thing for 20 years and if you know the fit and you like brooks brothers fit you could buy the same thing so replenishment items are good for online so a portion of that um uh you could do online but let's see what happens
1: Okay, Mark, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
1: okay mark let's move on to the part of the show where we dig into some of the issues that businesses are facing during this pandemic and get your ideas uh, for the fix. Now, one sector that we actually haven't talked too much about on this show is the fitness industry. Uh, And there's no doubt that things have fundamentally changed for things like gyms, fitness studios, personal trainers. Um, Let's start by discussing gyms specifically. Uh, Ontario is the only province that hasn't Reopen gyms. Um, it might happen in stage three, that kind of remains to be seen at this point. But the rest of Canada has started reopening gyms, but under strict conditions, they have to, um, you know, institute capacity limits, hand out disinfectant, all sorts of precautions. Um, and that's because gyms are a high risk place for the spread of the coronavirus pandemic, or the coronavirus, coronavirus. Um, but before... The pandemic, I mean, you you had an idea of how this business worked with memberships. You needed a certain amount to make a profit. But if you're a gym owner in this new normal and you have to limit the number of people that come in... I mean, what should you be doing here? What is the fix? Uh,
0: there, are, there are a bunch of fixes there. I'm going to say there are certain industries that I've been watching and certain job types where I've been impressed with how quickly they've adapted and others where I haven't. I've actually been relatively impressed with how many gyms have adapted and how quickly they've adapted to the online model. I am by no means suggesting that uh, doing online fitness classes is enough of a replacement for the subscription model that they have. And I'm certainly not suggesting that that is the way of the future in entirety, you know, for the uh, for the uh, sector. But it is is a good mitigant. Uh, And I will say it will make a part of the mix in the future because you could have larger classes. There's a whole bunch you can do uh, by bringing your offering online for a portion of it. But when I think about gyms, I think about two things. I think about segmentation. And so I think about who actually wants to go to a gym. And I think about when they want to go. And I think about why they want to go. And so the reason that certain people go to a gym, uh, instead of working out at home, um, is well, there's a capital cost to equipment, right? And so you sort of think like a treadmill is $2,000 and a bike can be $500. Or you could go to Peloton and buy a $1,000 bike for $3,000. But uh, cap, you know, it's expensive. And so that's one of the reasons people go to a gym. You also go to a gym for inspiration and you go to it from others and coaching and you go to a gym just for the social aspect. And so you have to think about when you are, when you own a gym, who are the people that are coming there and why are they coming? You know, I saw, I think Spinco, what they're doing is they're actually renting out some of their equipment to people. And that, so you sort of, Mm -hmm. that's why I went with segmentation because for the people for whom... The gym is not about the social aspect and whatever. It's just because they don't want to spend, you know, three or four grand to kit out a gym in their home. Well, you know what? The main thing is, can they find a way to get this done over the next few months? The problem is some people today, and you know by going in the fitness section of retailers or trying to order on weights online. Some people today are saying, well, I'm not going to not work out for the next few months. I'm I'm going to buy stuff at home. That's a problem for gyms because then once you have the equipment, if the other reasons aren't enough for you to go, it's a problem
1: so how do you adapt how do you adapt to that if, if people are still worried about coming in and and are choosing to work out at home well
0: I I think one of the things we need to think about in in the fitness world is the ecosystem so it's a sort of you know a sort of buzzword which I don't like to use but if you think about all the things that go around fitness so the advice you get the equipment you have uh, the tracking that you do the apps which are uh, which have gone crazy enough as you would guess have gone even crazier in the last few months what did I say? The clothing, uh, the places you go, the equipment, the tracking and the food. Think of your uh, offering wherever you start, if you start in clothing or if you start in an app or if you start it with a gym, think of your offering as part of an ecosystem and then do what Apple does, create a bunch of services around the consumer that are related. So that by removing one service, it's actually uh, very hard for them because they don't have access to you. So, you know, Under Armour owns Fitness Pal. They're my fitness pal, which I use. um, And they're looking to get rid of that uh, to generate cash that they need. On the other hand, Lululemon uh, buying Mirror because they're trying to build the ecosystem. So even if you're a small independent gym, you could find a way to do nutrition coaching and you could find a way to do massage and all the other things. And you create a view which you know I value. Uh, if I'm a member of a club, that somebody knows the entirety of you know what I'm trying to do, right? If you're a person who's really focused on fitness, they know how to sell you clothing, they know the food you eat, and then they're building a deeper relationship. So I would say it's not too late to try to do that. I would say the obvious of um, going online where you can for sure do do whatever's possible mm-hmm. there, uh, but try to think about the parts of the ecosystem you don't have. And don't worry if not everybody's going to be an employee. You're not uh, necessarily looking to add costs. You may be looking to add contractors or you may be looking to create a partnership with a food delivery company uh, that does nutritional counseling or builds uh, meals for people that are distinct for whatever their fitness goals are. So I think there's a lot you could do. Talk to your customers, find out what they want. And don't give up because I think, uh, first of all, gyms uh have different uh, utilization throughout the day there is a way to sort of spread workouts out over the day people will change the routine a little bit uh to not bunch into certain times especially if they're not going into the office and they have more flexible times uh and people will come back uh again you know you know not everybody is super conservative about the virus i think more people should be in some ways but a lot of people are like listen i'm not worried about this and so you need to say okay well then come in Please be safe when you come in. Please wear a mask when you're in, not when you're working out. Use our disinfectant, all the rest. But yeah. I, I don't, I'm don't. i not giving up on people going back to the gym very soon when it opens.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I've seen a lot of gyms, you know, they're having uh, people book times and everything. So um, when I think about where I would work out. Um, like in the work hours, there's always like a rush hour for equipment. So actually booking a time slot for the gym sounds kind of appealing to me. Right. Um, but I do want to uh, move on to our final topic. Uh, we've talked a lot today about retail. And I don't know if you've noticed this, Mark, but most of the companies that we talk about when we do talk about bankruptcy protection, a lot of them are fashion retailers, specifically apparel. Um, so let's quickly talk about apparel industry. I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic has obviously accelerated some of the issues that those retailers are having. So, I mean, if you're in the business of fashion, what advice do you have in order to get through this pandemic? What kind of strategies should you be looking at?
0: Well, prayer is not included as a strategy, so I won't talk about that. It, listen, uh, again, I don't want to make light of the trouble that people are having. I will just say this is this is a really tough spot to be in. And it, I think it depends on the category that you are in within apparel. And, mm. you know, we talked about Brooks Brothers. I actually think menswear is probably the toughest category to be in. Uh, mm. And men's form, like when I mean formal wear, like uh, going out to black tie, I mean, like men's workwear. Uh, Why do you say that? Because I don't, uh, I, I think that uh, this will stereotype a bit, but I think it's true. Men don't look to buy clothes uh, as much as women do. I mean, I happen to like buying clothes, but a lot of men don't look to update their wardrobe and don't think of it. And so when they have an excuse or a reason not to buy things for the next season, I think a lot of men will sort of take that opportunity. Um, and so I think, you know, today, you know, uh, obviously people need shirts if they're on a lot of video calls and they don't need new pants and that's a problem and they don't <laughs> need suits. But I even think that. Uh, it, it even if we go back to work in September, and I think there's a question mark about who goes back to work. So I'll take downtown Toronto as an example. If people go back to work in the core in September, which is a big if, even if people then need suits again, how many people are going to say, okay, the first thing I'm going to think about when COVID is over is going to buy the next season of suits. They're just going to say, you know what? Of all the things that can wait, I could wait one more year to sort of buy my suits for the season or whatever it is, and I'm just going to sort of suck it up. Uh, I think you can manage that to some degree with promotion, I think for the people who like clothing, men, women, etc. You know, there is, uh, there is an aspect of a treat. So if things are going well, you're going back to work, the economy is improving, you may want to treat yourself, you know, I like Eton shirts, that's not a brand plug, they don't pay me. But uh, they like, um, maybe when the economy improves, I would buy myself a new shirt if I got a promotion. Uh, That's a hint to Harry Rosen to email me. But uh, uh, so I do think you could do stuff with promotion. I do think you need to be online. The problem online with apparel retail is that, and the higher end you go, is that it is an experiential sale. People do need to try it on to see how it fits. And here's the thing. Price competition is obviously more intense online. If you're at the store and you like this shirt, but it's $180, bucks, you are not going to go to another store and park to maybe save 20 bucks. Right. And if somebody's on for 160. But if you're sitting at your desk and you see it for 180, before you click buy, you're going to go to every other retailer who sells it and say who sells it for the cheapest, because the thing is the same if it's the same shirt. When's when's it going to arrive? So mm-hmm. I say that as a way to say, be careful because once you become an apparel retailer that is much more online than in store, you actually open yourself up to a bit of a different game the margins are lower because of shipping and price comparison and lots of things. So in the meantime, you have to be online. You have to find a way to uh, do promotion. I also think from a pure cash standpoint, you got to get rid of your inventory. And, you know, I, I think I talked about this in the past, you know, apparel retailers work in seasons, especially uh, work right? And so either, either mm-hmm. going out or work uh, workwear for men and women, um, so I, I think you need to make sure to get rid of this season as best you can, because what you do not want to do is start next season uh, with this season still to get rid of. Because I'm not sure we know yet what all the design houses are going to do in terms of are they going to just skip a season and just redo next season, or are they going to have a new season that they want to try and uh, yeah want to try and move? And you need the cash.
1: I think that's a big question, and I, you know, seen just look going into some stores that it is the selection is just so much more pared down. There's actually one uh, boutique not far from me here on uh, Queen Street West. They're closed. I like going in there every now and then, and they're closing down because um, they were saying that they hand pick a lot of the clothing that they do sell in there, and they're just unable to go see the people that they usually buy the clothing off of. And like a lot of them are in the U S and they just don't see a time. So I thought, I mean, it was sad that they were closing down, but also I think a brave call for them to make, um, to know that that was perhaps the time.
0: Okay. I, you may not want to hear this, especially at the end of the show. I, I, I can agree. I think it was, this is unkind. I think they should have figured okay. that out. They should have figured that out. You know what, have their five suppliers, mail them some samples, and figure it out, and I, either either they weren't being creative enough, or that's not the real reason. Because I, I think that they, you, you know, don't own own a business, you have to be gritty. You have to just figure it out. I'm sorry, I don't. Yeah, to I mean that was there. something that Probably they were nice clothes and wonderful people, but
1: they were they are both. Um, that and I mean yes, that was what they said was the reason for closing. But um, we're going to leave that there. Uh, we have run out of time. Thank you so much again, Mark, for the discussion today. That's it for this episode of Crisis Management. You can rewatch the show on our website or listen to our podcast. Check out Crisis Management on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening.
2: Hold up.